0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Diaspo. Today, our guest is Pradeen Saint-Four. Pradeen works in New York City as an immigration attorney. She obtained her BA from Dartmouth College and her Juris doctor from Cornell Law School. Pradeen was born in the US to Haitian immigrants. Growing up in Brooklyn, she knew from a young age she wanted to help people, which has led her to careers in policy and law. Pradeen, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. This is great. You're an immigration attorney in New York, and I was wondering if you can start off by telling us what you do, like what is your day to day like? What kind of cases are you seeing? Who are your clients?
1: Sure, of course. Currently, the majority of my clients are uh, low income migrants who have come to the United States to really get a better life. Um, they're fleeing particular atrocities in places that we hear about in the news more readily, more frequently. They largely come from the Northern Triangle. So, uh, my, ca- my clients are coming from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And when they reach me, they're really looking to have someone help them navigate the legal systems in the United States so that they can apply for immigration benefits, so they can remain in the United States legally. The kinds of benefits that I, that I help them with are largely humanitarian benefits. Sometimes when we're talking about immigration, it's is hard to really kind of piece together the number of different ways that people can come to the United States or remain in the United States. But one large subset of immigration law has to do with these benefits for people who have experienced a number of different atrocities and such that it makes it really dangerous for them to return home or they have particular fears of returning home. The majority of my clients are youth so they're young people who either are hereby, they came to United States by themselves, Um, they may or may not have a parent in the United States, a parent may have abused them, neglected them, of course, some of them are also fleeing gangs, um, rape, they're fleeing incredible, incredibly traumatic incidents. Um, so by the time they reach me, they're at different stages of being able to talk about that trauma so that we can figure out what might be the best pathway to help them remaining the, in the United States and get not only the help that they need to deal with the trauma, but really um, kind of start their lives over.
0: Mm, wow, that sounds like very rewarding but also challenging work. What skills do you think uh, you're relying on on a day to day basis to really uh, help your clients? I mean, of course, there's like the legal aspect of it, but then it also sounds like there's some sort of empathy that's needed to kind of handle the emotional parts of the cases.
1: Yes, it's really calls upon empathy that you're exactly right. It also, in a lot of ways, calls on recognizing where the client is in that narrative of traumatic experiences and frankly, what their experience in the United States have been. Sometimes I have clients who have been through a number of different attorneys for one reason or another. And because I'm providing the services for free, it's pro bono representation. Sometimes it's it's a matter of really listening to what's happening now. Mm-hmm. um how they're feeling about their case how they're feeling about life in the united states and building rapport so that it's not only about seeing me and talking exclusively about the trauma because that in itself is is also jarring so mm-hmm. i've i've learned to listen a lot uh, but listen also for their resiliency recognizing that they've been through, even the journey to the United States has been through something that I, I, I based on my experience, can't even fathom. Mm-hmm. And with that represents a certain amount of strength, resiliency, and and pause on my part to realize with all the things they've been through, where are they now emotionally? And kind of just start there.
0: Mm. Wow. It's pretty deep. I mean, you know, we're all human, so... It's definitely learning how to connect on another level with another human being. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So how did you end up in immigration? Did you jump into it right away after law school or was it kind of a windy road to get there? Definitely
1: winding. I graduated in 2010, which was the period of time where, frankly, none of the dream jobs, pro bono or public service jobs, were hiring. There were major hiring freezes, and I knew I wanted to give back in some capacity. I thought I wanted to do actually criminal defense is what I I originally leaned towards. And when I was sitting in the moment trying to figure out, well, there all of the places that I want to work are not hiring,
0: mm-hmm.
1: let me also think about the other dream roles that I had had in mind.
0: Mm.
1: When I started law school, I always knew I wanted to do some kind of policy work. Mm-hmm. And people told me the path was you work in either, you work in direct services, meaning you have clients that you represent. For a period of like five years, five to 10 years. Mm. And then, and then you work in policy. And, and for me, I had that so ingrained. So I was very just upset, saddened that none of the direct services were hiring. But I had to remind myself also that, oh, there's this policy thing that I'm, I'm doing the direct services to get to. And it was frankly talking, talking to people. Um, I, I was fortunate to have a, a short term internship while I was applying for jobs and. I remember my, my mom would say this to me and I there were some professionals who had said this to me previously. Like when you're looking for a job, you have to make sure that you're not the only one looking for your job, meaning that you tell everyone you're looking for a job. Mm. Like you make sure that you're not in a silo doing this work by yourself because that's not how the majority of people actually find and locate the job that they, they want. Right. And and certainly enough, um, I was telling everyone I needed a job or what I was applying for <laughs> and telling them all that I was interested in and, and throwing in, right, the policy part. It, it sounded crazy. And for me, I'm such, sometimes I can be such a private person. And right. I have, growing up, it's this a, a constant idea of you, you, figure it out. And you figure it out by yourself. Right. And I luckily like that advice of telling everyone, I happened to tell someone that I was interested in policy. And I saw a position at the Vera Institute of Justice that had to do with policing policy, Mm -hmm. which is certainly what I was interested in, which is why I was interested in criminal defense work initially. Right. right? And she looked at me and she goes, Oh, I used to work at Vera. (laughs) And she was a former prosecutor and a Mm. black woman. And we had all these amazing conversations about her role as a, as a prosecutor, because until that point, I never met a black woman who was a prosecutor, Mm. which sounds, I mean, it was, this is 2010 fall at this point. And I had never sat down and had a conversation with someone who was a black woman and former prosecutor in Brooklyn.
0: Wow. Um, (laughs) That's where you grew up, right? (laughs)
1: It, right. And that's where I grew up. So I had all these questions. <laughs> and I had so many questions. Yeah. And because we were, uh, we were both, I mean, I was interning. At um, a nonprofit that she had just got started working at. She was maybe there, I think, a year before before I started. And we had these amazing conversations. And she said, Well, look, like, I, I also think I know, send me the job position that you applied for. I think I know the person who's looking. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it, it's a fine example of how sometimes when you blindly apply for a job, you, you never know how deeply HR is looking at your materials.
0: Right. Um,
1: I have a very French-sounding last name. My family's from Haiti. And even though I have Spanish-speaking proficiency on my resume, HR completely missed it. Oh, and so wow. if it weren't for... This amazing attorney who then re-forwarded my materials to the person who would later become my supervisor and a, a close friend and colleague even today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They would have never gotten my resume. And the reason why I know about the Spanish component is that was the first question that the, the person who's now my supervisor had. Like, oh, well, does she speak Spanish? And it was certainly on my resume. And she went back to HR and they just missed it. And I think it's because they, they whoever was reviewing it just presumed right. that I was not Spanish speaking, even though it was indicated on my resume. So wow. It was it, all the
0: winding roads to come to immigration. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I think that goes to the point, too, like when you're doing your resume, you have to be like very strategic. Like if the position requires Spanish, maybe highlight that. I mean, I think that's something I would have taken for granted. Thinking about how someone's going to perceive your name, plus how deeply to look at your proficiency in Spanish, yeah. it was
1: it was absolutely it was incredible to me. In part because it, I think, I think Spanish appeared like a couple times <laughs> on my resume. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> it was. I I landed on they really just saw Saint Florida and thought.
0: No way. (laughs) Yeah, like, she she doesn't know Spanish. (laughs) No No way. (laughs) It's like, maybe French. (laughs) Right. How how did you develop an interest in policy, especially with regards to policing? Was that something that stems from your experience growing up in Brooklyn, or was it just stuff that you learned about while you were in college that kind of broadened your interest in that? Yeah, so I grew up in... Brooklyn
1: in the 90s. So I'm a born and raised New Yorker. I, my entire life was spent in Brooklyn and Brooklyn in the 90s was all the things that you hear about. It Mm. was, there was a whole lot of violence going on. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a whole uh, level of, of fear, but the response to public safety, the response to decreasing the violence, was something that matched the violence, meaning that it was something that for the community or for the community of folks who really wanted safety, that the police response to that violent crime in the communities really also shook the communities in ways that were palpable. I don't know that I would have called the police if I needed the police for help in the nineties. Mm-hmm. It was really a sense of let's just keep things as insular as possible just to avoid additional contact. I, I do remember once we, we, when I was growing up, we did have to call the police for, um, our house was, our apartment was burglarized. And I just remember even as a kid, they were perfectly friendly. Like Mm -hmm. there was nothing that the, the officers did. But I do remember the sense of just pause Mm -hmm. when the, for the uniform. Right. Um, It was never, for me, it was, it was always also like a sense of curiosity of how, how are these officers different than the ones who are stopping the, kids that look like me, but are male in my community, right? How, how are these different? And I think I've always, I've, I mean, I've, I've been fairly precocious as my mom. Uh, so I'm going to take her word for that. I have always <laughs> felt that I always had these questions, like how, how do you make the, the kind officers who came to my house when we were burglarized and were just, you know, really sweet and saying, you know, it'll be okay even though, right, they couldn't do much about it. Mm -hmm. How do we make, how are they different in this moment with me than, you know, the officers who are out in the street patrolling, right? Or uh, how do we connect the, the difference in behavior? And also as a teenager, I think I always had that sense of curiosity of why is it that a mayor who chooses the police commissioner can have such an impact on little old me and my neighborhood. Right. And, and why do I have to be that concerned about it? Giuliani was the, the mayor for, for like those formative high school years. I remember mayor Dinkins. I just remember how important those mayors were in the decisions that they made. And I think it, and specifically the decisions that they made around policing.
0: Right. Because
1: in that time, it was all about the murders, right? The thousands of people who died every year. Mm-hmm. And those numbers were very real in New York City. So policing had always had a, a really visible impact in my life in that way. And I knew that I wanted to work at some level in the, the criminal justice system. And I thought that my, my role was going to be as a criminal defense attorney at the end of a very long process. And I had never thought of, uh, at least growing up, I had never thought of working at the beginning of that process. Mm. And meaning like working, working with police, learning about policing policy. And it was at Vera that I, I worked on policing with respect to immigrant communities and then communities who were, um, disengaged, disenfranchised, dissed <laughs> to be just in the, the simple sense of the word. Right. Uh, Post 9-11 and how they, um, how those communities very broadly were working with the idea of having law enforcement in their lives in a very different capacity after September 11, 2001, than it was previously.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's been. I mean, it's it, it's been extraordinary. I actually um, later on in my career, I I worked for the New York City Police Department as an as an attorney doing policy work, and it was a it's a um, it's a phenomenal career trajectory that I would never I would never have believed. Like sixteen year old me would have never believed I would have applied for. <laughs> And worked for the New York City Police Department. Yeah, ever she just wouldn't know. She'd be like, "No, you're kidding."
0: <laughs> <laughs> is that because of the perspective you had of the police at the time, or is that because you like didn't even see yourself in the law? It, um, I think it was probably both.
1: I, I had like a, a fascination with the law that I thought was just, just a like interesting thing to read about, know about. Um, uh, my extracurricular centered around things that were law related. Mm-hmm. I did something called Washington Seminar, where we wrote letters to to electeds and legislatures, like and uh, to go to DC and meet them. But I never thought of it as a career. So yes, the sixteen year old me would not necessarily have thought I would be a lawyer. And I also was really just curious. and I had so many questions about the police department that, I, I questioned it. Is I, I think would be the short answer. I seriously questioned the police department, and therefore would not have fathomed working for it in that place. What's similar the sixteen year old me, similar to the the me that's not sixteen anymore, is that I I accept that once you enter a job, a position, a country, you inherit. Every part of it. Mm. So you inherit all of the good, the bad, the in between. That becomes part of your, your tapestry, your narrative, your history. Right. And at the point when I was 16, I wouldn't have thought I would ever be prepared to take on that history that the New York City Police Department has. And right. even though it's a completely I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a drastically different uh, department that it is now from from what it was before. But I I would have never thought that I would be in a place where I could accept that history, right? Because right now, as a as a former employee of that agency, I fully get that I inherit every bit
0: of it. Mm. Yeah, no, it can I could definitely see that as being tough. But then on the other hand. It's like as a person of color, as people of color, we need to have ourselves in those roles. We do. So it's um, we do. it's kind of a struggle like I want to be there but then I also don't yeah. want to be there.
1: Exactly. Right. It's it's not it's not for everyone. And part of the difficulty that I had, I receive a lot of advice from people. And depending on where they are in their career, and this could be beginning, middle, end, I take into account where they are in their perspective. And someone who who I respected a lot while wor- while I worked at the Vera Institute of Justice, and this is this is someone who was not a who was a colleague, but not a supervisor, he had I think at the time like thirty years of law enforcement experience and he could see in me that I was very much interested in policing. I had, I very much was, and it still am, interested in how uh, police have to adapt to the communities, to the shifting nature of their communities. So as communities come in, whether or not, whether they're refugees, uh, whether they, they are limited English proficient, whether they are coming from smaller rural communities and moving into the city. It's the job of the police department to know how to respond to all of those niches that become part of their communities. And this this particular law enforcement professional, he recognized my interest in that. And he honestly said to me, look... If you are really committed to knowing about policing in this way, you should seriously consider working within a police department. Mm -hmm. And this is why. And it was an advice and observation that, that I hadn't solicited, but it felt like it really just came from a place of knowing and i appreciate advice like that i've i've received advice like that from people at various levels of their professional career or educational career and that resonated with me i still there's a part of me that that really thought even in that moment, like, oh, he's nuts. <laughs> but, but, but it's good advice, right? Like, right? like No good advice when I see it, uh, even though I'm not like ready to fully take it in. And act right. on it, I right. know, I like, I immediately know that was good advice. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. I I knew I, I absolutely saw the the logic, the reasoning. I <laughs> absolutely, and I kept it. I I didn't, even though I said, you know, my response was like, that's nuts." I didn't throw it away. Right. And it took me a couple more years with working with Vera. And while I was thinking of what my next steps would be at Vera, I took that advice out of the closet, dusted it off Mm -hmm. and started contacting people who would potentially put me in a, in a, um, in the room, put my resume on the table so that working with a police department could be possible. And then it was, and it's, I will say from the, from having done it, it is absolutely not for everyone. My biggest, one of the biggest challenges was for me speaking to friends of mine who knew my professional trajectory and knew that, you know, how, how do you have someone who wanted to be a criminal defense attorney work for the police department? Right. (laughs) Right? And it's, it's a, struggle that they had that I had already resolved and because I was working already working with a department I I think I, I may have taken for granted that people would would remember who I am as a person and see that as an asset in the role right and I had people who were very resistant and given given the time that I, I started with the police department, I started in 2014, which was not the best year for the police department, the city, mm. or um, or policing anywhere. Right. And I uh, I had to just take a step back and and listen to people and do the work on the inside, but not not engage with folks. Uh, and and it was purposeful because I I knew folks were angry. I knew people would knowing where I work just feel like they can unleash in a way that wasn't going to be productive to me. Mm -hmm. And, and I recognize that I had to have conversations with people who are closest to me about how, how I work in, in ways that were, I think opening for them Mm -hmm. Uh, because I'm not, I've never been the one to protest. I want to be the one inside figuring out what to do after the protests are done, right. But I need the protesters out there, <laughs> right? I need that, right, right. Uh, but I, but I think because I have such strong opinions and beliefs about about people's safety, I think everyone should be safe. I think we should all move towards that. I think people in my sphere just presume that I'm the one in the street with the cardboard protesting, mm-hmm. and not realizing that I'm always the one. Looking and trying to figure out what are they asked and how to really get those asked on the table so that we can move forward. Right. Like, I want to know what what are we asking for and what's the plan to how do we strategize to get this done. And I, I I realize that people presume all sorts of things, and sometimes it's it's hard to burst that lens, burst that bubble.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean. That sounds tough because one, it's your livelihood and how you're making a living. And also, you know, when you pick something as a job, especially when you're in a role where you feel like you can really help people, it can probably be discouraging to have people automatically thinking something about you because you work for the police, especially when it's such a heated topic. Like policing is, yeah,
1: Yeah, it just touches
0: people like it sparks.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very, very, it's very personal. Um, I remember people sharing a lot of personal information and trauma. Some of it with, they shared with me in the context of, and why could you ever work for them? And it, for me, it was, I think to your point earlier, someone, someone has to do that work. And I didn't hide from, In the work that I did for the police department, I never hid from being a Black woman who grew up in Brooklyn in the 90s. And when I would walk into a room, and people are expecting a representative from the New York City Police Department, and they saw me, and if people gave me the look, I'd say I would stop and say, go ahead, you can absolutely ask me whatever questions are on your mind. Mm. Because... It's, it's a different, it's a conversation that, that white peers of mine would not be able to have. Right. Because they're not, they're not seen as the same way. The experience is different. And so why not allow, see myself as a resource, even in that respect of being like, go ahead, tell me what's on your mind. <laughs> and then right. together, like once we get that on the table, Then let's let's figure out together what we're going to do with the next steps.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. In your role at the police department, were you involved with interacting with the actual police officers and then also stakeholders in the community? Yes. Yes.
1: One of the projects that I worked on was called New York City Ceasefire, and that works to reduce gang and crew violence, really street group violence in a couple of different boroughs. And it, at the time, it was focused on, I helped with the launch of the, of Brooklyn and in the Bronx, so select pre- precincts in both Brooklyn and the Bronx and it's a it's a coalition a collaborative of law enforcement community members service providers and a lot of the the work that i had to do was really going into communities talking to folks to figure out if they're interested in being community members who were represented at meetings that were held in in Brooklyn and then later in the Bronx and nothing like it had really existed in New York City. So it was coming mm. up with something from scratch. Right. And really being on the ground to talk to people and figure out who else is is doing this work. Um, at the time in New York, we also had the crisis management system, which was um, an initiative, a strategy, led by the, the mayor's office of criminal justice. And they had a model that was similar to Cure Violence, which is looking at um, looking at street violence, gun violence in particular, as a public health issue. Mm-hmm. And that existed at the same time that we were trying to launch New York City Ceasefire, which took the approach of directly communicating consequences to uh, members of, of street groups, and communicating directly so that there is no kind of question about what the law enforcement um, response would be, no question about what the community response would be, and really bringing law enforcement, community, and community and community members and service providers together at the at the same time. Mm. And so both projects, both strategies, were functioning at the same time. For New York City ceasefire, Fire, since it was really the, the the New York City Police Department that was kind of leading the the collective to kind of get together, to, to get at a table and talk it through and launch it, I, as a representative of the police department, was going into communities trying to find a space where we could have these meetings, talking to folks about the the strategy, and really working to get people on
0: board. Right. Wow. That sounds like really great community work. And honestly, it sounds like you've done the policy and now you're kind of doing more so the practice of law. Uh, how did you transition into the, from policy to practicing law? Was, did you just feel like you needed a switch? I mean, it sounds like you were dealing with immigrant communities even when you were working at Vera and the police department. Was it just like a natural transition?
1: It was me finally getting to the dream job that I wanted to do initially when I graduated in some capacity. I think mm. it I found an opportunity that would allow me to do direct services in a way for a community that, based on everything that's happening in the administration, are being attacked, marginalized in levels that... Um, that my stomach can handle. Mm-hmm. And I tend to, I tend to gravitate to positions that would challenge me and positions that are particularly difficult at the time. So the transition into, uh, into the practice of law is something that I really wanted to do. Um, I wanted to practice law from the moment I graduated and because opportunities were sparse. And policy had presented itself, which was another, another dream. I pursued policy and, and followed the trajectory of policy. Reason why I really wanted to practice law now is because I mean, immigrants communities have been in the news and attacked under this administration in ways that I just, I don't think I could have ever fathomed um, the immigration system generally has always had complications. There have always been things that needed to work better. There continues to be uh, pockets of bureaucracy that may or may not be necessary in that, in that exact way. And so there was a, always a, a pretty sensitive system. And it seems to have just blown up under this administration in ways that people who may not have thought about immigration or the immigration system are now seeing that there, there needs to be some kind of reform. For me, I tend to also go towards opportunities or go towards roles that are particularly challenging And while I was at the police department and thinking about, you know, what my next steps would be, I felt like I'm sitting on a law license and degree when there are people who really need representation. Mm. What am I doing? why, why don't I just do that? Um, there are limitations when you're working in the police department to doing pro bono representation. And I recognized that it would be complicated to say the least of working for the police department and doing pro bono, like free immigration work on the side. And I knew that I would have to go someplace full time to be able to do that or find a spot that would allow me to do the amount of pro bono work that I wanted and speaking again about just connections and opportunities there was a a former Viren someone who used to sit right next to me at Vera who was in a role and I saw I saw an email pop up I saw her name and I I gave her a call to learn more about the opportunity and and here I am uh, about 2 years later doing this amazingly challenging but rewarding work in in a time under administration that really necessitates having an attorney. Like, the value of an attorney is just immeasurable.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I graduated from law school in 2013, and yeah. I mean, I think it was similar challenges that I faced was finding a job where you could actually use your law license, mm-hmm. and At the time, also, there was a lot of talk about, like, serving underserved communities and how there is a need for people who can't afford attorneys. But then you also have, like, people who were graduating who couldn't find jobs. And it's like, how do you connect those two things? And it sounds like your position basically does that.
1: It absolutely, it lets me, um, it lets me provide this service to people who absolutely need it and it's it's certainly an instance where i know if i weren't in this role i mean fortunately if i if i weren't in this role there would be someone else in it but it feels really great to have me be there particularly as a black woman most of my uh, there there's a huge section of my clients who are black women from honduras they Mm. um, they're garifuna and so they're they're African descendants living mm-hmm. in Honduras, and some of the discrimination, marginalization, it just resonates mm-hmm. in a way with me that I don't know if I were someone else who who weren't from the same from that similar African diaspora, I don't um, I don't know if I'd understand it the same way, right? right. It resonates in a very personal way, the fact that I speak Spanish really helps. And so for for these particular clients, they're seeing an attorney who's a Black woman who speaks their language. Mm, Yeah. And that's something that cannot be replaced. Because in the law, being a Black woman is also just a very small percentage. And I'm very much aware of the value added in my presence here in this space. And I'm, I'm I'm grateful for it.
0: Yeah, no, actually, I think it's like, really amazing. Especially I think like, when you're a first gen, there's kind of pressure on you to follow, like a stereotypical path, like go, oh, yeah, go to law school, but you know, go work at a law firm or a big company. And it sounds um, like yeah. you've like definitely <laughs> followed your voice, which was giving back to others and serving your community and i think i mean that's definitely something i have struggled with is like serving the community slash buying your parents a house Uh, (laughs) so uh,
1: so it's it's a i i mean i haven't shared the the mom Part about it, but there were certainly moments. I mean, she's always known. I've always been the kid to help people, right? Like I'm, I'm helping people, strangers with their, with their bags. I'm like translating for someone who needs, I'm, I'm, I've always been that kid. yeah. <laughs> right. And my mom is a single mom. And so I, I grew up like helping out in the house in ways that I think who, um, kids who are kids of single parents, get it like there's usually a a, a sibling who might be taking the lead on doing all that stuff Mm. but really in the house it was just the two of us so I'm helping out on all sorts of things right and I'm aware of like our finances and things that I don't know I would have been otherwise if it weren't for the the makeup of the household and so she she knew that I'm (laughs) she had a sense that this whole a law school thing was was probably not going to end up in the way that she was (laughs) like (laughs) Um, and she she is funny there are things that sometimes because creole is her first language and creole and french are her first languages Mm -hmm. there's sometimes things in in english that i i don't know if she's been introduced to before so like there are certain phrases. So pro bono is one of them. Yeah. And I remember saying, telling her, like trying to explain to her that I want to do public interest. I want to do pro bono. And this is, was still when I was in law school before I graduated. And I was trying to figure out how to interpret that in Creole. And then I said something like, mm. um, So that in in English would be like that's like a person who doesn't have money, and she's like, but and, and then in English she responds like I don't understand, and I'm like, you know, it's a person. So I say in my like, Creole like it's a person who helps someone and doesn't like charge them money, and she's like, but I don't understand, and, and I kept thinking right like my Creole is not this bad, right? Like I think I can handle these things, and then there was a point where she's like. I get what you're saying, but I'm never going to understand it. <laughs> and was like, and then I was like, Oh, okay. Oh. Okay. I, I see where we are.
0: <laughs> like, it's like the language it's not a language issue. Oh, right.
1: She's just like she just stopped me and I just remember being like, oh, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, this is and, suddenly,
1: like, and suddenly, like, she was seeing her retirement in a different light. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not as fancy as she might have liked. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but she's, she is very supportive because, because she, she knows my personality. I have also been partly like her caregiver when she's been ill. And that whole lifestyle of being you know, needing sometimes to take care of someone and then having your heart want to be give back. It just wasn't conducive. Even, even if I had gotten, you know, into a, into a a firm, it, it's just not amenable to lifestyle. I, I know that, when you start that path, it's the firm comes first. Mm. And that's, that is a trade off that I could never make. Like my mom's health comes first. So if I need to drop everything, I knew that I would not have that job. When I was at Vera, there are moments that she was ill and I had to work remotely so that I can work from home and, and do things or check in with her. And that nonprofit, I think in, within nonprofits, like everyone really understands um, the value of, of family in a way that's very different in firm life, especially in first years,
0: Right.
1: Um, especially like the, the larger law firms. I understand like smaller firms are different, but there's a certain level of I, I can't Place all of those clients ahead of my mom. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No,
0: that's very real. <laughs> like, I mean, depending on what industry you're going to, because it's not just in law where it's like that, where work comes first. It's you really have to kind of choose your career based on what your values are and like what your what your family needs are at the time. So that's totally understandable.
1: It's. I mean, it's a definite. It, it's a definitely tough. It's definitely tough to be able to navigate or kind of admit to yourself, like, those are the things that I needed. I I would probably tell my younger self that, like, being able to have the words, right? I now have the words that says, my priority is this. I probably would just give my younger self those words just to save, you know, agony and <laughs> stress.
0: Right. Uh, to
1: say, you know that this is what it is here. <laughs> <laughs> here you go here's the <laughs> census you tell people <laughs> like,
0: yeah is that like do you mean um your younger self was that something that you struggled with or was it in addition to that there were other stressors that were going on where you think like oh, uh, I could have been a little bit easier on myself
1: yeah I think my younger self really expected that life as a professional that I would be able to make this job that makes, you know, a quadrillion dollars and, you know, I'm making that up, but, uh, (laughs) but be, be super wealthy and be able to by myself, do anything that I need to at home. I think I, I thought that I had to be a, a superhero Mm. and do everything myself. Right. And I, I think it would, have alleviated some stress if i just had that language that phrase to know that you don't have to do everything yourself you can ha- set this priority understand that this is the priority and then move forward with that as your compass mm-hmm. and that is fine and that is okay and not feel guilty about it right, right? like not yeah. feel not feel kind of that i'm i'm letting someone down or letting myself
0: down or failing right uh-huh. yeah yeah no that makes sense and I mean when you were going through college and law school you said that you're very much like self-reliant and feeling like you were doing things on your own did you at any point like while in school did anybody ever give you any type of advice to like reach out into your community or did you in- like see the need to do that for yourself and start being more reliant on the community to help you reach your goals or.
1: So I think there are, I mean, I know there's certainly a lot of people who helped and were willing to help and able to help the moment I started to realize that it's okay to ask. Mm. And there's one thing where people are like, Oh yeah, you know, if you need anything, just like give me a shout. And then there's another thing where you, reach out to someone because you're like, I don't know what to do. This is, this is what I want to do, but I need help getting there. Right. And, and have like a real conversation about that. And so there's, there were many people who helped in a number of different ways in college and on my path to law school, which also had a winding road. It, There were people who certainly helped me in ways that I don't even know how to repay, save for, you know, what I do now, which is talk to whomever Mm. needs help. Or if anyone reaches out to me for anything, I absolutely do whatever I can.
0: Yeah,
1: I think when I talk about talking to my younger self and saying, like, these are the priorities, go forth. It's also so that I don't spend as much time worrying about whether or not I should ask for help. And then just ask for help. If that makes sense. Like instead of worrying and having the angst about doing things for myself or whether how people would respond when I ask for help, just go ahead and be fearless. Ask for help. The worst thing they can say is no, but mm-hmm. you already know what your, your priorities are. You can ask someone else.
0: Right. No, that's very true. And just looking back through your career up till now and maybe even school, are there any challenges or failures or successes that like really stick in your mind? And like, what lessons did you learn from them? When I was applying for law school, my
1: plan for law school was to take one year off. That was the plan. That's what I mentally prepared for. I took the LSAT. I applied for school's I got into Brooklyn law school and that's where I was supposed to go to law school because that was the one year plan. Mm. Um, And I, I I was accepted to Brooklyn law school. That was absolutely one year plan. When I was accepted, my mom fell ill Mm. and I remember at the time I was I was on um, like a fellowship in Minneapolis and I remember having to cut the fellowship short, come to New York because she was going to have a surgery. Mm-hmm. And I knew with surgery because we had experience with this before that there would be like the recovery period that I would ha- have to be around for. And depending on the surgery, like I didn't there was no real way of telling how long uh, her recovery would would be. I remember distinctly kind of frantically calling the admissions uh, and financial aid someone at Brooklyn law school, because in my head, I'm like, Oh, oh my goodness, like my one year plan. <laughs> and I'm supposed to start law school in the fall, right? Uh, what's going on with my plan. And I remember calling them and kind of, um, I was probably a mess. Like I, I didn't, I don't think I had the word in my in my throat to say I just need to defer admittance I'm Mm. not even sure if that's exactly because my mind was focused so focused on my mom but I knew I had to call Brooklyn Law and tell them something right I'm not showing up in the fall (laughs) Yeah. Uh and so I call and you know God bless her. Cause she was not helpful. And that's exactly what I needed. <laughs> like everything that happened, right. Like she was not helpful. She told me something about some paperwork. And I was just like, where, where would I get this? Like what, um, could you email it to me? And she was really not helpful and said something like, you know, give us a call in a week or something like that. Mm. Completely not helpful. And I remember at the end of that conversation feeling like I failed. I'm not going to law school. Mm. And then immediately being like, I can't, I can't even think about any of this right now. So I'm not going to law school, but I'm going to go take care of my mom. Right. And so, and that was in May. And that's what I did from May until August. Like I just focus on my mom right, and her health and making sure that things were, were good at home. And it wasn't, it was, it was maybe around like, actually like late July when I was like, Oh my gosh, I also need to make money (laughs) because (laughs) I don't know if mom's going to go back to work. And I, I found luckily like a city job that I started sometime in August. And I then started thinking about law school in back again in, in maybe November sometime. I signed up for another LSAT course. I'm still like doing things with my mom. Now I have a full time job. I'm taking this LSAT course. And you know, of all that, I got the exact same score. (laughs) (laughs) And so my response was, it was like the, the, like the parade of terrible things. Like if you had taken my best score from the first time I applied to law school at like the best sections and the best sections of the next, I probably would have had, you know, a perfect score because I did like the inverse of, (laughs) like I scored better on other sections, right, (laughs) but exact same number. I, when I found out, I was just like, what, like, this is the score that gets me. Am I going back to, am I applying again to Brooklyn law? Cause now like whatever, whatever admittance is now gone in the mm-hmm. wind, whatever happens to that. Right. Right? Cause I, I, um, I hadn't deferred.
0: So, right.
1: So I, I just felt uh, like it was, it was both a challenge and a failure. Cause I'm like, I felt like I failed again. Yeah. Like I, I've had all of this time. I didn't defer this admittance and now right. I have the same score. So I'm looking at, right. The same cadre of schools in my right. head. Right. And I applied to, like, a, a couple of schools, and a friend, colleague, I always confuse, like, when you have a friend, and then they also become a lawyer, are you friends and lawyers? That's a good
0: question. I have no clue. <laughs> it's, like,
1: it's like, now you're both in the same professional industry. It's like, are you still, like, friends and coll- Like, what is... <laughs>
0: (laughs) You're both, I guess.
1: Wait, are (laughs) you both? So she's, so she is wonderful. She has, she comes from a, her family is Dominican. She comes from the, the same kind of like cultural background of, you know, like having to do that, that immigrant hustle, something. Mm, And I reached out to her and I was like, girl, this is what happened to me. Yeah. (laughs) And she was just like, we're going to figure this out. Yeah. And she was like, I, I went and I visited her. I talked to everyone under the sun. I was on the wait list at Cornell at the time. And she was like, and she's, she's very also like um, spiritual grounded in her, in in her faith. And yeah. She was all the things I needed at that point. Yeah. And I was just like, I have failed. (laughs) (laughs) Come fix me. (laughs) We had, we had an awesome weekend and sure enough, like a year, I got off the wait list for Cornell. And I was just like, wow, like, oh, what a difference a year and a couple months make. Yeah. It was solidly like I went from, Walking away from a college uh, from a law school admission and not it, not because I was just like haha I don't have to go but right. walking away because my priority said I I can't do what this admissions lady said right. I don't even understand what she's talking right, right. if she had the capacity or the ability to just press a button and defer mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have gone to Cornell
0: right and and
1: had the experience that, that I had which was you know wonderful and the opportunities that I've had because of it right but it's my journey to law school was like one of the most like challenging and so many different levels and really if I had just stayed quiet because I didn't know a lot of attorneys at the time Mm. folks who were who I went to to um, college with by and large like they were just starting out in law school. Right. And so a part of me had felt bad, like reaching out to this friend of mine. Cause I'm like, she's in law school. She has so many things on her plate. I know. Mm. Um, and then to have me reach out and be like, I need help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's probably exactly how I sounded. Like, I don't have to do this. Like, (laughs) <laughs> like, like the plan is like all right you have extra time take the set again who gets right. the same exact number
0: <laughs> like, Yeah.
1: but and have have that number and have me be enough to to get off the wait list at cordell was just all just mind-blowing yeah but it, it definitely spoke to being able to reach out for help, and having, frankly, like, the the nerve to apply to Cornell after I said, you know, let an entrance to Brooklyn Law School lapse. Right. <laughs> like, like, um, and I say nerve because I feel like as I was preparing the application, I was like, the nerve. But I felt more <laughs> shameful of applying to Brooklyn Law School again. <laughs> the second I'm time. Like, right, right. Because it's like, really? <laughs> yeah.
0: You're applying again. Are you gonna do the same thing you did last time? So <laughs> Right. <laughs>
1: so I had to I had to switch it up.
0: <laughs> that's tough. That's definitely a tough situation to be in. And yeah. honestly, a lot of people who go to law school have someone who's attorney in their family. Like that's what I noticed when I was in law school. Like all these people had mm-hmm. lawyer parents or s- lawyer families. Someone in their family is a lawyer. So it's like they had people, to to help them. If you had had an attorney in your family, someone would have been there to, like, help you, guide you through all this stuff. It kind of just goes to show you had at least had your friend who you could go to.
1: Yeah, I'm so—and she knows this. Like, I've told her this, like, numerous times. I'm, I'm immensely grateful that she was able to take my frantic, like, what's what are, what's going on? I'm not going to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, you in, in at least I don't I don't know how it was for you in, in your household, in my household, it was, you know, doctor or lawyer and you're like, What aren't there other professions out there? <laughs> it's like, it's like in this house world it's true. <laughs> oh
0: um, Right. It's like yes. that that paranoia of being like, It's too late for me to be a doctor. So. <laughs> you're like I'm really committed to this path. <laughs>
1: yeah right, no right. I mean like
0: I think yeah. yeah when you're first gen, your career options are like pretty limited even like mm-hmm. I mean I always wanted to be a lawyer from when I was a kid so I guess for me it was just like okay I picked this one we're just going with it good for you you pick the you pick <laughs> yeah I picked the winner <laughs> Yeah, I chose it. But <laughs> oh. I remember, like, even at some point, my brother wanted to be a doctor. And that's one of the reasons, like, I enjoy doing this podcast is, like, to show people, like, you don't have to pick this lawyer or doctor. Or even if you do pick it, there's different paths within everything that you're not limiting yourself. But kudos to you for, like, reapplying. Because I think when you're in, like, an vulnerable position where, like, you have family that's, like, suffering, that which means you're suffering and then also you know, when you do feel like you failed at something, it's really hard to pick yourself back up again and just try. So kudos to you. And now you're doing amazing work. And you've done amazing work and have had such an interesting career so that's wonderful thank you
1: yeah i would never have imagined that now talking about it it all feels a bit surreal like how did how did all that happen <laughs> <laughs> and i think i think it all needed to happen to get to this um to get to this point i yeah. don't i recognize a lot quicker now like when i need to ask for help and just we'll ask people and we'll ask the number of people if one person tells me no i'm like oh there's probably other people who can say yes right and which is a a trait that i i did not have before
0: yeah at all yeah i mean we all go through things just to learn the lessons we need to learn about ourselves really is what it seems like that's definitely what i've seen (laughs) about myself (laughs) (laughs) oh man yeah absolutely yeah
1: (laughs) absolutely
0: well, I just want to thank you for joining us and sharing your journey through your career and school. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you have any questions about Diaspora or our guests, please shoot us an email at theaspo.podcast at theaspo.co. That's co as in co or you can shoot us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and please share the podcast with your people. Have a great one guys. And thanks again.